to be joking. You've got to be joking. Now, when the treasurer wishes oh, to go no. there or not, I would forbid him going. Forbid him going to the Senate. To, uh, to uh, account for this unrepresentative swell over there. Hello, Nick, and hello, our listeners. Welcome back to the Unrepresentative Swill podcast. Very happy that you're here. My name is Nick, as always, uh, and I'm with my delightful co-host, Rob. Uh, Rob, how, how are you on this fine, sunny morning? It's fantastic, isn't it? Here in nice WA, no COVID, no Delta. Yeah. I don't know, reading the news last week, it's been very gloomy, which really contrasts the morning that is been served up here in sunny Perth. I know. Remember last year, uh, as this season spring was approaching, we tried to license the song "Spring Has Sprung." Yeah, um, Skeggs, from the band Skeggs, Skeggs never got back to us on that Skeggs one. did. They didn't reply to us. Big surprise. So I feel like when we get more clout, we might make that happen. But great song. Yeah, oh, I think well, everyone you know. should listen to it. Is it spring yet? No, it's still it's winter. Still winter. Technically. Yeah, I, spring is soon spring to be is sprung. September, though. hey. Yeah, and and boy, am I excited for summer. Yeah, yeah. I always see this and end of seasons. Everyone wants the new season. Yeah, everyone gets tired of. Yeah, we have very short attention spans. Yeah, but I'm intrigued. Which season is wished for more, summer or winter? Definitely, got to be summer in right? Perth. Summer, and I yeah. I'm a huge supporter of summer don't feel that great about winter. Yeah, I agree. I think if I could have the winter nights with summer days, my life yeah. would be sorted. Even look, even the summer days. I remember when I lived in West Leaderville as a kid, summer nights were so hot. Yeah. But I'm very fortunate to live near the coast now. Oh. And it's actually a lot cooler because of the sea breeze. Yeah, you got a big, big old breeze in. It's huge. So Gee, it must be really nice. I'm happy with the summer nights now. To be honest. Oh, as you as you should be. Must be super nice. <laughs> yep. But it might be all sunshine and rainbows here in WA, Rob. But of course we know that Australia is in big strife. And and this has hit me this week more than I maybe any other week we've done the podcast, Rob. I'm starting to, I think, be a little bit affected by this. I just feel a bit down, a bit yeah. pessimistic. So once again... I want to apologize because it feels like the last month, I think we've had one or two podcasts where we haven't talked about this, but it just keeps getting worse. Um, I think during the week we saw the the initial breaking of the old Victorian record for most cases in a day and New South Wales, uh, you know, never content being second to Victoria has really built upon that lead and extended uh, the record. And there was a great bit in the Chaser podcast this morning. By the way, uh, recommended reading this week is the Chaser podcast. Some some legitimate actual news analysis, which is quite interesting, but also it's hilarious. Yeah, it would be. Those guys are, man, what I do for the Chaser's war on any, everything. To return? To return. Oh, wow. But they, I know it's not viable anymore. But surely like an Amazon or some, you know, streaming <laughs> service. Surely there's some up. huge US company that yeah. just would pump money into it, right? Right. Yeah. They're always looking for those nostalgia. They're still giving Jeremy Clarkson TV shows, right? Yeah. Well, they the on the podcast this morning, they were just like they were like this is actually great news that New South Wales holds record now because now we're better at Victoria at this. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um those guys are always 
Oh, they're really good at finding some cheer in uh, the gloomy news cycle we're living in right now. Yeah. So, Monday the 22nd? It is Monday the 23rd. Oh, it's close. The 23rd close. of August, 818 new cases in New South Wales and yes. 71 in Victoria. And I get the feeling, Rob, obviously... Well, let's address New South Wales first. Uh, it's pretty clear to a lot of people, I think, that this is out of control and I don't think it's going to get better with the current restrictions or potentially even any restrictions in place. Yeah, I think I think the only way out is now vaccines. And that's what everyone's saying, but people are even unsure about that because you have to get everyone vaccinated and people know that even if you're freshly vaccinated, you can actually still contract and spread the virus. It's very unlikely that you would. And the further, uh, uh, the more time that passes after you get your vaccination, you can still, more likely you are to spread the virus still. Yeah, you're just unaffected by it. And people point to the UK and countries like Iceland as well. Iceland, I think, has extremely high vaccination rates, but they're still spreading the virus and having huge problems with the Delta outbreak. Yeah, this virus is uh, fucking intense. The, it's the Delta strain, isn't it? Yeah, the, del- the Delta strain. It has really seized the world by the collar and it's a, a whole new nasty beast really, isn't it? Well, it, it is a stark reminder of what we went through last year because I felt like earlier this year, particularly when the vaccines first came out and you saw countries like the UK open up and even international travel like starting to open, open up again, we thought, okay, we've done this, we've got past it, but no, this virus, as soon as we get complacent with it, it just does us. Yeah, yeah uh, certainly. And that was the, the biggest weakness, of course, of our government being so complacent and many governments across the world, but especially ours being so complacent with the vaccine rollout. But Rob, I'm still astounded by the lack of respect you're seeing to the restrictions in New South Wales in some areas. So last week I I flagged a story where there was a party with 30 or 40 people. I think it was actually 60 people going and 30 people infected in one of the hotspots in Sydney. And I just like, I'm amazed that 60 people feel like it was okay to go to a party like that and no one reported it to the police at all. And then, of course, it it becomes this super spreader event. And just today, there was the same thing, but for a church congregation and they all got fined. And this one actually did get reported to the police. Yeah. But I just, I, I, I struggle so much to see and I'm not even living in it, how people feel like that's okay. Well, I want to, I want to talk about these points maybe a little bit more nuanced than you've just said there. Obviously, I think it's stupid upon these people to do that. And I think that kind of goes without saying. But what's important is like, it's not these people's fault, right? In my opinion, I think broadly speaking, it's got to be controlled better from the government side of things. And like, we got to have better knowledge of how fucking spreadable this virus is, in my opinion. Yeah, look, I... I can see it's, you know, you do look for a bit more of a nuanced explanation, I think, when you start to talk about this because everyone's gut reaction is how how stupid, how disrespectful. And there probably is more stuff there. Uh, for example, the restrictions are still so confusing. And I think everyone is really frustrated by the messaging from Premier Gladys Berejiklian. The restrictions are different for different LGAs, local government areas still... They seem to be saying different things at different times. I think everyone is really frustrated with that and that probably contributes to some of this 
I guess this feeling that you're just like, well, you know, screw it. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to break the restrictions. Who cares really? Yeah. I also think this kind of hopelessness of the situation in that we're not getting out of this in less vaccines and also the vaccine hesitancies seem seemingly growing somehow. Yeah. So I think it's a big um, part of the thing. And I, I also think it's got largely a lot of things to do with how the Berejiklian government for the entirety of this, you know, kind of post-lockdown COVID era has shut on states like WA, which did short, sharps lockdowns, and Queensland and Victoria. They've gone, hey, lockdowns aren't the way forward. And when you spread that messaging to your public for a whole year and then all of a sudden you're locked down, a lot of people aren't going to agree with you on that. Uh, yeah, I certainly agree, Rob. Gladys obviously has a huge part to answer and, and she will shelve as much as she can to the federal government for the vaccine stroll out, uh, as we've seen has happened. But of course, it's her government that caused a lot of this. And le- let's be honest, it's the reason why Delta is spreading so much it is in Victoria as well and in, in New Zealand. Yeah. We now know that the New Zealand outbreak came from uh, someone who traveled from Sydney and New Zealand has 30 cases after you know, not having that kind of number for ages. It's spread from Auckland to Wellington now. It's really it's looking like it's going to start to be out of control potentially. Well, the amazing thing and that's something I do want to talk about is this Delta variant seems to be extremely transmissible. The fact that we're seeing a country like New Zealand who's had very harsh restrictions on international travel from Australia, seeing it spread up from like zero cases to 30 in a day is unbelievable, right? And uh, it is so different. If you look at Melbourne last year with just the the alpha variant, the, the original COVID, uh, they picked at 600 cases, of course. And if you compare the timeline to Sydney's outbreak now, they were already controlling it by this time. So they reached their peak a few weeks ago and it was already going down. So I think that coupled with the problems around restrictions and the vaccine rollout just shows you that Delta is really this different issue. Yeah. Well, as you've called it, the vaccine stroll out. And might I add, I'm not sure if you've come up with that joke. I did, I did not come up with that. <laughs> gee, it's good, I must say. Who came up with it? Chaser? I think I heard um, an ABC reporter say it. That's pretty epic. And of course, it was a stroll out. And now it is a sprint out to try and desperately get as many people vaccinated. But Rob, there's still huge problems. And I just want to flag this. I think it's so important. COVID in New South Wales is now spreading to some remote indigenous communities. And people in those communities haven't been vaccinated yet. The vaccination rates are so low, even though it was a priority group under the original vaccine rollout plan. And vaccines were literally redistributed from those areas to private school boys and other students in the education system in New South Wales. And you can yeah. say, you know, maybe, look, if you really look at it, that decision might have been justified, but I think it just ultimately points to a problem of supply again. We don't have the supply. Yeah, definitely. I also think, like, the f- it is an absolute shame and disgrace is a word. I'll, I don't use that word often, Nick. It's a disgrace that, that, that COVID has been allowed to get out to remote Indigenous communities in the west of New South Wales. It is a fucking disgraceful, Nick, that these people that have already dealt with so much shit and have such poor living standards, they have living standards uh, equivalent to third world countries in, in these remote Indigenous communities. The fact that we've, we've let it get out there. 
That is absolutely disgraceful. And, you know, John Barilaro, the Nationals, who are, you know, for the bush, have a fucking big role to play in that, redistributing vaccines from rural New South Wales to the city. How can you justify that? It's shocking, Nick. It's absolutely shocking. And, you know, that just contributes again to this feeling that is it just truly is a really dark period for Australia and the world, right? Uh, so we have 30% of 16 plus people fully vaccinated. I think at about another 30% have received their first dose. But Rob, like the question is, will we reach that 70% by October going towards that 80%? Because National Cabinet originally flagged that that was going to be the point where we would start to loosen those interstate travel restrictions and we could really loosen up uh, and open up. And ScoMo is even still saying in New South Wales, if we start to get to 70%, 80%, the restrictions will start to disappear. But is that still a tenable position? There's so much confusion about it now. Yeah, I think what we've seen in, as you said, Iceland, even in Israel, I think Israel is actually dealing with a bit right now, and they have 100% vaccination. Yeah. So... I don't think it's true. And again, it points to this idea that the government's basically come out and said it's no longer a supply issue. Which is not true. Which Not true still. Not true still, but we'll move that to one side. If it's not a supply issue, let's in, let's do more to encourage people to get it. Yeah, more to encourage and, and better facilities. It was just so too little, too late. It took a year for pharmacists after asking for so long to be able to get approved to actually give the vaccination jab now yeah that was only relatively recently and it's about getting the vaccine to the rural areas as well as the city and having a strategy to deal with vaccine hesitancy which i've just like from speaking to people this week i've i've just come to appreciate that that actually is such a big issue and it's not just people don't want to get the vaccine and they're straight up anti-vaxxers in that traditional sense People are convinced that they're going to wait for a different vaccine. There's all sorts of misinformation going on about the Pfizer and the RMNA um, vaccinations about fertility. Yeah, all I've this heard kind a of lot nonsense. about fertility, yeah, which well, clearly is, is mis- misinformation. It's, it's clearly misinformation. And of course, we should say that. It's, it's, there's no evidence yeah. at all for that. Everyone needs to get the vaccine as soon as possible. It's part of the strategy here. Yep. But where's the strategy from the government to deal with that? I, I just... The, the overwhelming sense is that the government is just playing catch up and catch up, shifting blame, shifting blame. And I think it, again, it contributes to this really pessimistic feeling, de- depressing feeling in Australian politics right now. Yeah, well, I think this, this whole catch up thing is really emblematic of the Liberal government. And I know I'm being harsh on, on the Liberal government for the entire podcast length, pretty much, but move that to one side. It's really emblematic that this Liberal government isn't a government, it's a marketing agency that tries to do its best with what tools it's been given by the incompetency that is the actual government behind it. The fact that they have to just constantly be saying, you know, you know, we're getting there, supply issues are no longer an issue when they are still, clearly, right? We'd have better vaccination rates if there weren't an issue with supply. And the whole catch-up thing just really points that poor governance part of our government. And Rob, it really, I, I, it starts from the top with that leadership from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. I, I just think, you know, time and time again, we've seen there's just no leadership there in Cabinet as well. They're just, they are playing that PR game and it's really disappointing. And I'll say that, I, look, I don't have the, the broadest view of, of the media landscape. I do try my hardest. 
But I, I see journalists, even from News Corp, really starting to call out the government and give a scathing review or critique of Scott Morrison because everyone is seeing it now. And I'll say, Rob, I'll bring this up now, that is reflecting in the polls. So obviously we know polls aren't definitive, but Labor's two-party preferred vote is looking the highest it has in a, in a while at 52 or 53%-ish, depending on what poll you look at. Yep. And, you know, would an election be called and that number would actually come to reality now, Labor would win a huge, huge victory. Yeah. So, first of all, election election ain't happening until the last possible date, I think. We can, yeah, very we can clear. see that now. We, Me and you were talking about how if this vaccine rollout is quick, that's the Liberal Party's ticket to win the next three years. They've lost that now. So, they're going to have to grind this out and see what they can do with the tools they've given themselves. And on that point of polls and the accuracy and stuff, I think a poll that is very understated is preferred prime minister because that's been Labor's Achilles heel since Kevin Rudd, basically. Yeah. Is that we've never had... I'll say we there. Why not? We've never had a uh, a preferred prime minister, you know? It's always... You know, we've for the longest part, Labor's had a lead in two-party preferred. But preferred prime minister is awful. Under Bill Shorten, it was awful. And it's basically the same under Albanese. Yeah, it's it's still not looking great. ScoMo is, has been leading for a long time in there. And and I I will hazard a guess, Rob, that when election time comes and those the the Liberal Party starts to run those real those political ads which really target the character of whoever's in opposition and Anthony Albanese in this case, that number on preferred prime minister will start to reflect in two party preferred. And that's why it will come down. And that's why maybe you'll have something like the shock election loss for Labour in 2019. Yeah. I, I don't think these these polls records... If we went if we went had an election tomorrow, I don't think we'd see 53% of the vote going to the Labour Party. Yes. But there are so many factors in this federal election leading up to it. I just want to flag quickly as well. Mark McGowan, with his un, unyielding popularity is really throwing a spanner in the works of ScoMo with regard to this national cabinet vaccine strategy. Because, of course, as we said, originally the idea was when we hit 70% vaccination, these restrictions will start to drop. Mark McGowan is flagging that actually that might not happen. WA is introducing some of the toughest border restrictions we've seen to date, that you have to be vaccinated to even come here at all. It's going to be really difficult to find consensus in national cabinet with so much blame shifting and I'll, I'll go back to what Tom Osterberg said on our podcast a few weeks ago. It feels like this is such a fractured country. And the, yeah. the sharp edges of our federal system are really starting to stick in now. Absolutely. And I feel McGowan should be very careful with his extreme toughness on this virus. I understand how poor it is right now. And I completely understand his, uh, his you know, caution with uh, other states. However, if we get to 80% vaccine, you know, everyone's 80% vaccin- vaccinated, I think it would be very, very difficult for him to make an argument to introduce lockdowns per se. Because he hasn't he hadn't ruled that out, I think, the other day. Yeah. So. And, yeah, it's clear he's pursuing elimination as the strategy. And other parts of Australia are saying um, suppression is the best strategy. And a lot of health experts are saying with Delta, it's actually impossible to achieve elimination if you still want to, you know, be able to give people basic freedoms to travel and everything like that. So, yeah. look, yeah, I'm honestly critical for, with Mark 
for a lot of things and this especially, I think it requires some cooperation with the rest of the country. You can't just declare Mark McGowan stand and refuse yeah. to cooperate at all. Old Marxist McGow- McGowan. And we really must oh. move on, Rob. Uh, that was just felt like one big rant, didn't it? Yeah. Again, sorry if we talk about it next week, but it, some shit will pro- we'll probably crack thousand next week in New South Wales, right? Yeah. So, and we must address the next big story, yeah. which is Afghanistan and the victory of the Taliban, the loss of the West, and all of the problems that's causing now. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. We we talked about this when it seemed like the Taliban were all but the government. Uh, and now it's basically confirmed. Ooh, it's entirely confirmed. And the West is fleeing uh, at all costs, really, at this point. Yeah. Except uh, for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and there's a huge rush to get evacuation flights out. Australia was a, a kind of lagging on this at the start. So our first flight out had only like 30 people on it when it could have had way more and... ScoMo and Peter Dunn were flagging that you know, this would be a very difficult issue from the start. There's also problems that have come up or people have flagged with our visa system. So we're going to grant 3,000 humanitarian visas to Afghanis, but that's under an existing program that you know, would have awarded visas anyway. And there's a lot of backflip, clearly. 100 embassy staff that were working at the Australian embassy the other week were said that they were not going to be granted visas by the Department of Home Affairs. And then the next day, uh, they're told they were. Yep. And there's this weird tension between trying to the government trying to show that they have a moral reason to help evacuate some people that helped Australia when we were on the ground there. But ScoMo is still flagging. This is not a sign to the people smugglers. He literally said that in one of these press conferences about yep. this. Uh, that Australia will be open doors to everyone. And, you know, so thorough is the securitization of immigration that ScoMo still feels the need to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The fact that Stop the Boats is still uh, an issue in this crisis is pretty showing, Uh, not only of the government, but even the Australian people more broadly. The fact that asylum seeking has become such a securitized issue, It's, it's so sad seeing the lack of help that Australia, a developed nation that can well and truly house a lot more people, not really opening its arms up. Yeah, and a lot of blame, I think, you know, the consensus is a lot of blame here rests with the West and Australia and the US in how this this whole catastrophe unfolded. Of course, the line that Australia and the Red and the West and the EU are running now is that it was basically the Afghani's fault that the military that we left behind just folded so quickly. I think, yeah, of course, there's some element of that, but also we were training them for 20 years. I feel like we would have known if they, yeah, if they were that fragile. So there's a whole, whole raft of problems and critiques here, Rob. But I'm, I was particularly interested in the number of people that were seemingly engaged with this issue on social media, posting on Instagram and Facebook as well and stuff, Rob. I think we addressed this briefly last year with Black Lives Matter, but what do you think about that? So there's there's two schools of arguments. One saying like let's you know support this issue, build awareness of the issue, and then there's a really pessimistic argument, which I think's kind of fucked, really, of saying like, oh your Instagram post isn't going to change the world, you know. And I think obviously that's true, right? A single person's Instagram post isn't going to do shit, but when it's done with the masses, as seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think. 
it can have an impact. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a way that people participate in political society, and I think it's wrong to shut people down for that. And there's all kinds of ridiculous arguments like, why weren't you saying this before? Well, obviously, no one was saying it before, right? It's the same with the mainstream media. But Rob, can I just use this platform of the podcast to call out behavior that I've seen online, which is really bad. I saw like a quite a popular Facebook post that this like satirical Facebook group made fun of this female influencer who was posting about, about Afghanistan on her Instagram. And this Facebook post basically said something like, if all the girls had posted about this sooner, maybe this like problem, like jokingly, maybe this problem would have been solved sooner. And it was clearly like they were saying like women posting on their Instagram is like pathetic basically. And like if that's not clearly sexist, I don't know what what these people are thinking. Because you're literally saying women should not post about this on Instagram, i.e. women should not participate in politics. Yeah, I think... It's disgusting. Yeah, it's, it is awful, Nick, I must say. I think that's another issue that should be talked about a bit more in this whole um, divide, I guess, about Instagram posting, is that this uh, Afghan issue is clearly affecting women much more. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, definitely. Um. So we got we got to address the feminist argument and the the gender roles and gender issues that are clearly at play here, rather than just dismissing it as a humanitarian crisis. Yeah, I I, I didn't even you know, even think about that, but that's so true. And I just it's also just an opportunity to see sexism alive and well at home. Yeah, absolutely. Nick. And Rob talking about that that women's issue. So the Taliban have kind of are playing a, a you know what people some people are calling a ruse where. They're saying they're not going to be a democracy. There's going to be some sort of council or something. But the female journalists who were there already in, in Kabul have not been stripped of their positions yet. I think there's some early signs that they were maybe saying women could still be educated. Are they truly going to be a more tolerant society? Or is this is this actually truly a ruse waiting until foreign forces leave the country and then they'll go back to the very... Uh, intolerant society there were before well nick truly we don't know right the only people that do know that is the the leaders of the taliban i guess but i think it is a ruse personally i I can't see why a nation that is so devoted or a leadership that is so devoted to sharia law and rule through god wouldn't see the contradictions between the extreme interpretation of Islam that they've taken and women's rights more broadly. And that I, I try and I try and be very careful in saying that I don't think is Islam as a um religion is inherently sexist, but clearly the extreme interpretations that have been taken by groups such as the Taliban do have sexist overtones, not even undertones. And yeah, I mean that also points us to our kind of final point of analysis here, Rob. Is is Islam fundamentally a force that works against democracy? And that's a very, you know, that's an argument we learnt about in political science, the so-called incompatibility thesis, that Islam is incompatible to some extent with democracy. Is that is that a case the case here? Well, look, I think Islam shouldn't be the the true blame for all this. I think a lot of it has to do with instability in in regions that happen to be Islamic. And when there's instability, often forces of nationalism and extreme forces are the ones that rise because 
you know, as we've seen in all unstable societies, such as, you know, even going back to Nazi Germany, when people are struggling and there's issues, which are often caused by external forces, see colonialism, see the Treaty of Versailles, for my examples, extreme forces which point fingers away from you are much more easy for people, the masses, anyways, to support rather than, you know, true democracy, for example. Yeah, I look. I I think that's perfect analysis. Really, I I have always thought the that idea that Islam was a force against democracy, if you think about it, is kind of racist, <laughs> and it was a theory developed by Western scholars, right? No, not all Western scholars, but you know, they had a big a big part of it, and it doesn't really seem to make sense because you know Indonesia is the Islamic country, and they're yeah. you know, it's a mostly for the most part a well-functioning democracy maybe not so, so much recently but it's not like islam it comes down to that thing is islam is islam inherently uh a worse kind of force on society than like a different religion like christianity and you'd probably say like they're if you look at the core of both of them there's some like really bad things they'd say about you know the role of women and all this kind of stuff but it's just been a, tra- a tradition in the west that we've had a very secular society yeah, that religion has not played a part in politics, but that same thing didn't happen in a lot of these other societies where Islam was the dominant religion. So, you know, that is, I think, the issue. Absolutely, I think there's there's two issues where you brought them up very well, there, Nick. But I want to expand upon them, if that's okay with you, please, and only if please that's go okay ahead. with you. First of all, the secularism is very. I think it's just important that governments have to be secular. Uh, we've seen that whenever countries run under any religion, it's fucked in my opinion. Look at um, India right now with the Hindu Nationalist Party that's in power. It's slowly turning into an authoritarian regime. So we need secularism in in government at all costs, in my opinion. So I don't think it's Islam. I think it's just religion in general can't be involved with politics. Secondly, I think the the class of, it's called a clash of civilization thesis, which is kind of broadly on this thesis, that Democracy is inherently a Western ideal at the moment, anyways. And when it's imposed in this Western way on these nations that have experienced significant trauma through the West, see colonialization and the countless wars the West have involved themselves in here, a lot of people are very scared of these ideas that have clearly brought upon lots of trauma for these people. So... I, maybe we can't see a liberal democracy in a lot of these nations. We need to see some sort of Islamic form of democracy. And yeah, you know, it's the classic thing. Like you take a system that you know, imagine is is crafted to fit the Western culture and you just go somewhere else, slap it onto a completely different culture and history and all of a sudden it doesn't work and you just point to it and you say, okay, it must be the country that's the problem. It can't be the system. Like, you know, just think about that for a second. Obviously, that's yeah. very simplistic in its analysis. Yeah, absolutely. Nick. I, I agree. And I think, yeah, we need to take a more broad, pragmatic view when interpreting these theses and when looking at uh, religion and its involvement in society more generally, I think. Certainly. And we'll obviously keep a close eye on the developments in Afghanistan. It'll be interesting to see if, if truly some more tolerant parts of the system do continue or if they will go back to the very very intolerant and terrible really society 
in the early 2000s. And, you know, there's already some signs of that. I think there's reports that people are being hunted down and murdered and beaten on the street and all, all that kind of horrible stuff. So, yeah. Um, should we wrap it up? Let's end it there. We're already gone <laughs> over time, but there was a lot to cover. Um, Thank you for bearing with us. Uh, it'd be tacky to promote up our, our stuff right now, right? It, it always feels tacky. But we always got to do it, you know? So, guys, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Unrepresentative Swill Podcast. And on Twitter, you can find us at, at Swill Podcast. And, you know, write, write us in questions if you have questions. Keep up to date with the feed. Um, and we'll be back next week. We're always interested for uh, audience engagement. Yes, we love it. Thank you very much for listening. See you later.